So we uh, left off yesterday talking about why treating hypertension is important. And so one of the things we saw was that if you treat hypertension, you're going to reduce the number of myocardial infarctions by about 20 to 30%, reduce the number of strokes by about 35 to 40%, and re reduce the amount of heart failure by about 50%. Now, how much does it cost to treat a person for hypertension a year on average? Do you know? About a thousand dollars. How much does it cost to uh, treat a patient for heart failure? A lot more than that. A lot more than that. And how much does it cost? Kidney failure is not on here, but how much does it cost to uh, treat someone on kidney failure? That's about a quarter million a year on dialysis. All right. Now, before we talk about well, actually, we've talked a lot about drugs. We're going to bring it back home now with lifestyle. Lifestyle treatments. First thing is weight loss. Second is sodium restriction. Sodium restriction can, depending on the patient, um, be responsible for up to four millimeters reduction. Now, yes, sir. What about, um, you talked about that with me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Now. It can, sodium restriction can cause a reduction of up to 4%, but it is highly independent or highly dependent on the individual. Some people, they do a low-sodium low diet, and all they get is disgusting food. Other people eat a low-sodium diet, and they will drop 10 points or more. On average, the average reduction is about 4 millimeters. DASH diet can lower, I think it's like up to 10 or 12 millimeters of mercury. So it is, it is better on average than sodium restriction. So if you ask me, I'd rather have the DASH diet than sodium restriction personally. But again, it is highly individual. And who's the most likely to benefit from sodium restriction? People of African descent. What? What is the DASH diet, you asked? Um, DASH diet is um, high in uh, fruits and vegetables and lean meats, which, by which they mean poultry and fish, and low in fats and um, red meat. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. By the way, have you discovered top sirloin? It's, it's a, top sirloin is a wonderful cut of meat, very tender on the grill. And it's only like four. It's only like three ninety nine. It's re, it's really cheap. Yeah, it's by far the best bang for the buck. Especially if you get it at Sam's or Costco's. Sam's is better than Costco in terms of price. All right, alcohol restriction. Now let's talk about alcohol for a moment. What is excessive alcohol consumption? Okay, four drinks or more in one day or night or on average per week more than seven. And more than seven would equal what per day? One per day. So one per day can actually help a little bit, especially if it's red wine. More than that, you start to actually raise blood pressure. Exercise. Exercise is a wonderful thing for high blood pressure. 
Exercise and weight loss together are even better. Now, by the way, if you're skinny when you get diagnosed with hypertension, are you better off or worse off? Worse off. If you got a little bit of extra padding when you get, when you get uh, diagnosed with hypertension, guess what you can do? You can lose it and you'll get better. So you're better off to be a little pudgy when you get diagnosed. That's my plan. Oh. Yeah, I, I have goodies that I can hand out later from the Nurse Practitioner Council um, conference. Not, not, though, not sweet goodies, but like I have pens and I have, I have a BMI calculator. Ooh. And I have post-it notes and <laughs> all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave some of the cooler stuff to Professor Brooks to hand out for prizes in MedSurge 1. Anyway, so exercise. Next thing we can do is stop smoking. So I guess it's better to smoke before you get, because then you can stop. <laughs> be fat, be overweight, be sedentary, and smoke. So that way when you get your hypertension, you can change all of them. All right, then the last one is potassium and calcium intake. Um, people with hypertension sometimes have issues with potassium and calcium and want to make sure they get adequate intake. Also, um, several of our drugs affect potassium and calcium. So you need to make sure that those patients are getting enough potassium and calcium. All right. Now, the approach to treating hypertension has changed. In the, in the past, we would max out one drug, and then if that didn't work, we'd switch you to another drug. And we'd max you out on that one, and that one didn't work, and we'd switch you over to another one. We don't do that anymore. What we do now is we start you on one drug, raise the dose a little bit, and then if it's not working enough, we'll add in another drug. Why would we go to that way of doing things, rather than just maxing you out, and then if it doesn't work, switch to something else? Okay, they work differently. <coughs> All right, now, let me ask you this question. If we give a person a vasodilator, what's, what's going to happen in their body to compensate? Okay, you can have increased heart rate with reflex tachycardia. What else will happen? If we give a vasodilator... How is the body going to compensate for that lower pressure? Well, the blood pressure will go down, but what will happen in the body? What will the body do as a result? Okay, but how is it going to try and compensate? Okay, let's, let's think heart failure for a moment. It's going to what? Expand volume. It's going to hold on to water. So if we give a vasodilator like, say, ACE inhibitor, what, what's, the, what's the ACE inhibitor you need to know? Lisinopril. So if we give lisinopril, what's the uh, result going to be? What's the body going to start doing instead? It's going to vasodilate, but what's it going to do? It's going to try and hold on to water. So if we give a little bit of what drug would counteract that? HCTZ. So if you give drugs that work beneficially with one another to kind of counteract 
how the body would normally try and, and compensate, you'll actually get a synergistic effect. So that's one of the reasons why we do this. Now, the other thing is that we have more combination drugs now than we used to. So for example, lisinopril, because it works so well with hydrochlorothiazide, guess what it comes in? It comes in a combination, which would be called lisinopril slash HCTZ, or HCT sometimes. And the brand name, if you must know, is Zesteretic. Um, another good combination is an ACE inhibitor with a calcium channel blocker. So if we mix amlodipine with benazepril, you'll call that lotensin. Sorry, lotrel. Lotensin is benazepril. So giving combinations um, early and in lower doses reduces side effects because a lot of side effects are related to the to the dose. So if you give two drugs with a low dose, you'll probably have fewer side effects than giving one drug at a high dose. The other thing is that it attacks the multiple pathophysiological mechanisms. Yay! Now, here are some good combinations. Diuretics plus beta blockers. Those work pretty well together. ACE inhibitors plus diuretics work very well together. ARBs plus diuretics and ACE inhibitors plus calcium channel blockers. So there you go. The main ones to know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about the brand name for this one, but for the ACE inhibitors, there's several. Um, the most common one is probably going to be Zesteretic. Zestrel is the brand name for lisinopril, so lisinopril plus HCTZ. Uh, for ARBs, they usually name whatever it is slash HCT. So it'll be like Losartan slash HCT. For um, ACE inhibitors and calcium channel blockers, the two main ones are called Lotrel and Tarka. And Lotrel is um, amlodipine plus benazepril, and Tarka is verapamil plus trandolopril. But you didn't really need to know that. On a test, if I give you one of those names, it will get, I'll give you like, it'll say Tarka, and then it'll say, in parentheses, verapamil plus Trandolopril. And even though you don't know anything about trandolopril other than the name, the name tells you that it's a ACE inhibitor. And therefore, what do you know about ACE inhibitors? They lower blood pressure. How? By causing vasodilation. What else do they cause? They cause inhibition of what? What secretion? Al... Dosterone. So therefore, they may cause a little bit of decreased blood volume and may cause what to go up? Uh, lab value. Say it again? Potassium. And what would the major adverse effects be? Okay, not tachycardia. What are the major side effects of, of ACE inhibitors? Okay, say, what? Okay, dry cough. Sorry, I just couldn't hear what you said. I thought you were saying a Russian name. Dry cough. <laughs> so dry cough, angioedema, hypotension, especially what kind of hypotension? First dose. First dose hypotension. 
And what lab value might be high? Potassium, so hyperkalemia. So just from knowing it's an ACE inhibitor, you should know all of those things. And by the way, do you have an ACE inhibitor on a must-know drug list coming to a test near you very soon? And what one is that? It's lisinopril. So I helped you study. Yay. All right, some special considerations. Now, in general, if a person just has hypertension with nothing else, what do we start with? What do we start with if someone's got high blood pressure and nothing else? Now, I heard, I heard, okay, first I heard hydrochlorothiazide, then I heard them change their answer to exercise. Which one is correct? Well, the question is, well, the answer is it depends on how high the blood pressure is. If it's a little bit high, we will start with the lifestyle changes. And together, those are known as TLC, Therapeutic Lifestyle Changes. So um, if it's higher, then, then uh, you expect uh, therapeutic lifestyle changes alone to help then you might start with a diuretic. And especially what kind of diuretic? HCTZ. And why HCTZ? Because it works. Because it works really well. And because it's cheap. And the side effects, are they really bad or not so bad? Not so bad. So for those reasons, typically it's recommended that they would start with HCTZ. However, in renal disease, patients should start with perhaps an ACE inhibitor or an ARB first because those help prevent renal disease. In diabetes, should be an ACE inhibitor and or an ARB. And also caution beta blockers because they can mask the signs of hypoglycemia. And caution with diuretics because they can cause hyperglycemia. African Americans, ACE inhibitors are less effective. Now, what does that mean by less effective? It means the patient will need a larger dose or they will not have their blood pressure lowered as much. So there are a lot of physicians out here who will tell you, well, ACE inhibitors don't work in black people. That's not true. Yes, it is a stereotype. And it's also an incorrect stereotype. They do work in black people. They just don't work as well on average. So how would we know if it works on this patient or not? You would try it and see. So every now and then it takes a smart nurse to correct a not-so-smart doctor. And then finally, in the elderly patients, there's something called isolated systolic hypertension where they have normal diastolic pressures, and in fact, sometimes their diastolic pressures are low, but the systolic is high. So they might have something like, it's 160 over 70. And in those patients, diuretics and vasodilators work the best. Got it? Good? All right, um, I don't know if you can read that or not. Yeah, especially because part of it's up at the top. Um, Anyway, if you download the slides online, you can, you can read it. 
if you do the actual PowerPoint, you'll be able to see it. So it says, begin or continue lifestyle modifications. Lose weight, restrict sodium, restrict alcohol, stop diet, blah, blah, blah. If the patient is still not at goal, and what is the goal in this case? Blood pressure lower than? 140 over 90. That's, that's the treatment goal for most people. 140 over 90. Now, if a patient has diabetes or chronic kidney disease, then their goal is 130 over 80. So for everyone else, for normal people, it's 140 over 90. For people diabetics or chronic kidney disease, it's going to be 130 over 80. Then continue the lifestyle modifications and start drug therapy. So if they have, don't have, if they're just normal everyday people, tells you what you can do here. If they're not, tells you what you can do here. You don't have to memorize this because you're not physicians or nurse practitioners. But you do need to be familiar with this approach of you start with lifestyles, it's lifestyle changes. If you're not at goal, you're going to start adding in drugs. The drugs you add are going to depend on how high the blood pressure is and whether they have other diseases like diabetes or heart disease or kidney disease, etc. All right, and then if they're still not at goal, add in another drug or raise the dose. All right, edumacation. Now, what's the difference between compliance and adherence? Say again? <laughs> Adherence is a better word. Adherence, good. Compliance, bad. Like that? Okay, well, the difference is really only in the uh, connotation. But either way, you want to talk about it. These are things that we need to address, or patients will not take their medications. First one is dizziness. What do we do if a patient becomes dizzy? You just got it wrong on... So what was the right answer then? Alright. Okay. Now, how are we going to prevent that dizziness in the first place, though? Well, okay, have them sit up slowly and then have them dangle their feet before they stand up. Okay. What will make their dizziness worse? Okay, besides standing up too fast, because we just talked about that one. Some other drugs. And what's the most popular recreational drug in America? Alcohol, yes. Alcohol will make it worse. Do, now, does alcohol cause vasoconstriction or vasodilation? Causes vasodilation. So, you, if you're already kind of dizzy and now you're even more vasodilated, and, and what does alcohol make you want to do anyway? Fall. <laughs> P, yes, but that's different. <laughs> that's the next item. <laughs> All right, what else can make a person more likely to fall besides standing up too quickly and alcohol and other drugs? Like what kind of other drugs? Like opioids. 
All right, what else could make a person more likely to fall? What, what do many of you have in front of you, even as we speak? A drink. Say it again, please. Dehydration. Dehydration will also make these patients more likely to fall. So we want our patients to stand up slowly, avoid too much alcohol, avoid drugs that will make them dizzy, like opioids, and we want to make sure that they stay well hydrated. They don't have to go crazy, they just don't want to get dehydrated. The next one is urination. Who's going to need to know about urination? What kind of patient? Patient on diuretics. And what are we going to tell them to do? Take your diuretic in the morning. Don't take it later than probably 2 o'clock. For Lasix, you can probably get away with a little bit later, but with HCTZ, no later than 2. Next one, impotence. What are you going to tell them? Don't feel bad. It's okay. Everyone goes through this stage of life at one point. Generally speaking, impotence will improve, meaning go away, or begin to go away within two to three months after starting the medication. Yeah. Two to three months. Now, what's this? There's no magic pill. What does that mean? So they can't just take a pill and expect to get magically better. They also have to change their lifestyle. A lot of patients will think, well, because I'm taking my medication for high blood pressure, I don't have to stop smoking. I don't have to change my diet. I don't have to exercise. I don't have to. And so what happens? The medications don't work as well. And then finally, we want to have the patient self-monitor. Now, this can be a, do- a double-edged sword. Some patients are what we call um, anal retentive. Is that the word for it? Obstinate, compulsive, OCD. So you tell them, monitor your blood pressure, and the next thing you know, you're getting call- phone calls in the middle of the night. My blood pressure is, my blood pressure is, my blood pressure is. That's not what you want them to do. What do we want them to do when they self-monitor? We want them to take their blood pressure once a day and bring that into the office the next time they come back. Now, you can give them some parameters. Call the physician if the blood pressure goes above this number. But you don't want them to call the physician every time it goes up a little bit or every time it goes down a little bit. Make sense? But it's very important that they do monitor at home because when you go into the, into the doctor's office, let's say you see your doctor every three months. How many of you see your doctor every three months? Uh, none of you? <laughs> One of you? Most people don't see their doctor that often. So a lot of patients will see their doctors maybe every three months, and they're going to take their blood pressure how many times, if they're good? Twice. I mean, the patient in, at the doctor's office. They'll take it twice and average them together. Is that as good as averaging every, if it's every three months? How many days is that approximately? 90. 90. Is that as good as averaging 90 together? No. 
Which one is going to be more precise? Which one's going to give a better picture? Okay, so you want to have them take it every day and write it down. Enter it into a spreadsheet if they're nerdy. All right, and that is it for hypertension.